Hey, this is the second part of former inhabitants and winter visitors. This is the winter visitors part uh, where Thoreau talks about how crazy the snow is and vaguely references some of his friends who come and visit him um, who are uh, Channing, uh, Bronson Alcott, and Emerson. So come give a listen. Chapter 14, Part 2 At this season, I seldom had a visitor. When the snow lay deepest, no wanderer ventured near my house for a week or a fortnight at a time. But there I lived as snug as a meadow mouse, or as cattle and poultry, which are said to have survived for a long time buried in drifts, even without food. Or like that early settler's family in the town of Sutton, in this state, whose cottage was completely covered by the great snow of 1717 when he was absent, and an Indian found it only by the hole which the chimney's breath made in the drift, and so relieved the family. But no friendly Indian concerned himself about me, nor needed he, for the master of the house was at home. The great snow, how cheerful it is to hear of. When the farmers could not get to the woods and swamps with their teams and were obliged to cut down the shade trees before their houses, and when the crust was harder cut off the trees in the swamps ten feet from the ground as it appeared the next spring. In the deepest snows, the path which I used from the highway to my house, about half a mile long, might have been represented by a meandering dotted line with wide intervals between the dots. For a week of even weather, I took exactly the same number of steps and of the same length, coming and going, stepping deliberately, and with the precision of a pair of dividers in my own deep tracks, to such routine the winter reduces us, yet often they were filled with the heaven's own blue. But no weather interfered fatally with my walks, or rather my going abroad, for I frequently tramped eight or ten miles through the deepest snow to keep an appointment with a beech tree or a yellow birch or an old acquaintance among the pines when the ice and snow causing their limbs to droop and so sharpening their tops had changed the pines into fir trees wading to the tops of the highest hills when the snow was nearly two feet deep on a level and shaking down another snowstorm on my head at every step or sometimes creeping and floundering thither on my hands and knees when the hunters had gone into winter quarters. One afternoon, I amused myself by watching a barred owl, Strix nebulosa, sitting on one of the lower dead limbs of the white pine close to the trunk in broad daylight, I standing within a rod of him. He could hear me when I moved and crunched the snow with my feet, but could not plainly see me. When I made the most noise, he would stretch out his neck and erect his neck feathers and open his eyes wide, but their lids soon fell again, and he began to nod. I, too, felt a slumberous influence after watching him half an hour, as he sat thus with his eyes half open like a cat, winged brother of the cat. 
there was only a narrow slit between their lids by which he preserved a peninsular relation to me. Thus, with half-shut eyes, looking out from the land of dreams and endeavoring to realize me, vague object or moat that interrupted his visions. At length, on some louder noise or my nearer approach, he would grow uneasy and sluggishly turn about on his perch, as if impatient at having his dreams disturbed. And when he launched himself off and flapped through the pines, spreading his wings to unexpected breath, I could not hear the slightest sound from them. Thus guided amid the pine boughs, rather rather by a delicate sense of their neighborhood than by sight, feeling his twilight way, as it were, with his sensitive pinions, he found a new perch where he might in peace await the dawning of his day. As I walked over the long causeway made for the railroad through the meadows, I encountered many a blustering and nipping wind, for nowhere has it freer play, and when the frost has smitten me on one cheek, heathen as I was, I turned to it the other also. Nor was it much better by the carriage road from Brister's Hill, for I came to town still, like a friendly Indian, when the contents of the broad open fields were all piled up between the walls of the Walden Road, and half an hour sufficed to obliterate the tracks of the last traveler. And when I returned, new drifts would have formed through which I floundered, where the busy northwest wind had been depositing the powdery snow round a sharp angle in the road, and not a rabbit's track, nor even the fine print, the small type of a meadow mouse was to be seen. Yet I rarely failed to find, even in midwinter, some warm and springy swamp where the grass and the skunk cabbage still put forth with perennial verdure, and some hardier bird occasionally awaited the return of spring. Sometimes, notwithstanding the snow, when I returned from my walk at evening, I crossed the deep tracks of a woodchopper leading from my door and found his pile of whittlings on the hearth and my house filled with the odor of his pipe. Or on a Sunday afternoon, if I chanced to be at home, I heard the crunching of the snow made by the step of a long-headed farmer who from far through the woods sought my house to have a social crack. One of the few of his vocation who are men on their farms, who donned a frock instead of a professor's gown, and is as ready to extract the moral out of church or state as to haul a load of manure from his barnyard. We talked of rude and simple times when men sat about large fires in cold bracing weather with clear heads, and when other dessert failed, we tried our teeth on many a nut which wise squirrels have long since abandoned, for those which have the thickest shells are commonly empty. The one who came from farthest to my lodge through deepest snows and most dim dismal tempest was a poet, a farmer, a hunter, a soldier, a reporter, even a philosopher may be daunted, but nothing can deter a poet, for he is actuated by pure love. Who can predict his comings and goings? His business calls him out at all hours, even when doctors sleep. 
we made that small house ring with boisterous mirth and resound with the murmur of much sober talk, making amends then to Walden Vale for the long silences. Broadway was still and deserted in comparison. At suitable intervals, there were regular salutes of laughter, which might have been referred indifferently to the last uttered or the forthcoming jest. We made many a brand new theory of life over a thin dish of gruel, which combined the advantages of conviviality with the clear-headedness which philosophy requires. I should not forget that during my last winter at the pond, there was another welcome visitor, who at one time came through the village, through snow and rain and darkness, till he saw my lamp through the trees, and shared with me some long winter evenings. One of the last of the philosophers, Connecticut gave him to the world, he peddled first her wares, afterwards, as he declares, his brains. These he peddles still, prompting God and disgracing man, bearing for fruit his brain only, like the nut its kernel. I think he must be the man of the most faith of any alive. His words and attitudes always suppose a better state of things than other men are acquainted with, and he will be the last man to be disappointed as the ages revolve. He has no venture in the present. But though comparatively disregarded now, when his day comes, laws unsuspected by most will take effect, and masters of families and rulers will come to him for advice. How blind that cannot see serenity. A true friend of man, almost the only friend of human progress, an old mortality, say, rather than immortality, with unwearied patience and faith making plain the image engraven in men's bodies, the God of whom they are but defaced and leaning monuments. With his hospitable intellect, he embraces children's beggars, insane, and scholars, and entertains the thought of all, adding to it commonly some breath and elegance. I think that he should keep a caravansary on the world's highway where philosophers of all nations might put up and on his sign should be printed entertainment for man but not for his beast enter ye that have leisure and a quiet mind who earnestly seek the right road he is perhaps the sanest man and has the fewest crotchets of any chance i chance to know the same yesterday and tomorrow of yore we had, a, we had a saunter and talked, and effectually put the world behind us, for he was pledged to no institution in it, freeborn, ingenuous. Whichever way we turned, it seemed that the heavens and the earth had met together, since he enhanced the beauty of the landscape. A blue-robed man, whose fittest roof is the overarching sky which reflects his serenity. I do not see how he can ever die." Nature cannot spare him. Having each some shingles of thought well dried, we sat and whittled them, trying our knives and admiring the clear yellowish grain of the pumpkin pine. We waited so gently and reverently, or we pulled together so smoothly that the fishes of thought were not scared from the stream, nor feared any angler on the bank but came and went grandly like the clouds which float through the western sky and the mother-o'-pearl flocks which sometimes form and dissolve there. 
There we worked, revising mythology, rounding a fable here and there, and building castles in the air for which earth offered no worthy foundation. Great looker, great expector, to converse with whom was a New England night's entertainment. Ah, such discourse we had, hermit and philosopher, and the old settler I have spoken of, we three. It expanded and racked my little house. I should not dare to say how many pounds weight there were above the atmospheric pressure on every circular inch. It opened its seams so that they had to be cocked with much dullness thereafter to stop the consequent leak. But I had enough of that kind of oakum already picked. There was one other with whom I had solid seasons long to be remembered at his house in the village and who looked in upon me from time to time. But I had no more for society there. There too, as everywhere, I sometimes expected the visitor who never comes. The Vishnu Purana says, the householder is to remain at eventide in his courtyard as long as it takes to milk a cow, or longer, if he pleases, to await the arrival of a guest. I often performed this duty of hospitality, waited long enough to milk a whole herd of cows, but did not see the man approaching from the town. Hello, this is Tammy Rose, and this is the commentary part of the podcast. Um, I've just read chapter 14, section 2, um, the second part of the chapter called Former Inhabitants and Winter Visitors. Um, this is the Winter Visitors section, um, and I'm just recording it on the first weekend in November of uh, 2022. And I don't usually say the actual date, um, but I hope that this November is going to be notable because um, it was, it's literally been 70 degrees for the past, you know, day and a half and for the next two days, um, which is like unseasonably warm and super humid and um, almost scary <laughs> in terms of um, global warming and like this record breaking and um, and it just feels very almost inappropriate. Um, we've had just a lovely October. Um, the middle of the month is sort of known as like peak, you know, leaf season. And last weekend was gorgeous. And, you know, the, um, the leaves. So if you ever, if you ever get to, um, look into any of Thoreau's other writings, he has a great essay that was published after his death, um, helped by Sophia, his sister, um, called Autumnal Tints. And I think that was from a lecture that he had given. Um, but just about the joys of New England in the autumn and how just as thing, you know, the weather cools, the trees are, are responding in kind and they like literally burst into all sorts of such joyous colors. Um, you know, reds and yellows and oranges and like super bright. And, um, there's a great line that, that Thoreau uses, like nature teaches us how to die, which sort of like poetically talks about 
the ending of the year and, and how, you know, the joyous days of summer will, you know, help us appreciate, you know, as we, as we get older, blah, 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 and that whole metaphor. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I, I'm sort of, um, stunned at the temperature this past weekend and how it really, like I went to Walden yesterday and there were people swimming, like there are always people swimming as long as there's not ice, but there were like families and children who were, you know, playing in the water, um, just like it was summer. Um, and the, and the pond actually like the shore was full of leaves. Like you had to wade through like a foot or two of, you know, dead oak leaves before you could actually get to clear water. Um, and like, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who love, you know, I, I think that, that Walden actually, um, is best and, or easiest to enjoy, not best, best in every season. Walden is easiest to enjoy in the middle of summer. And then also like at peak leaf season and a week or two ago, I think the, they had to close the parking lot just in the same way that they would have to close the parking lot on a hot summer day when everybody wants to go there. Um, but it was closed because it was like literally like the best leaf peeping, um, you know, experience that you could have. You could go for a nice walk by the water and it's very picturesque and like perfect for photos and like, like literally everywhere you turn, you get a gorgeous photo. Um, and that's, it's, it's sort of really beautiful. And then I went for a walk yesterday in Lincoln, um, kind of in the, behind the Codman, um, estate, not, not quite, not quite on it. There's a, there's a farm behind it, a, a, like a, a working farm. Um, and there's, um, there's a little bit of a, you know, not quite a mini mall, but like, you know, a little commercial area with condos. And then there's a path um, that's accessible in the back of the parking lot. Um, and if you go through the path, then you reach like the one of the farms that and and yesterday there were um, chickens, or at least this season, there are chickens on that, um, that square acre of farm, or however, however big it is. Um, but you go along the corner of it, and then you get into um, woods, and there's a little hilly area. Um, and bobolinks nest there on the farm. And I, you know, the, the people who are the stewards of the Lincoln property, which is right next to Concord, um, are constantly talking about how in the 1800s, everything was farms. Um, and, or at least most of Lincoln and Concord were, were farms and just these big open spaces, um, which were, you know, like it's, of course, it's sad that the land was taken um, from um, the old growth forest, and there's not really a lot of, um, like, I don't, I don't think that there's any documented, like, genuine virgin forest probably left in um, most parts of New England. I think in Western Massachusetts, it's much more um, you can find things, but in terms of Lincoln, I asked the ranger. And he said that the closest that you're going to get to the oldest forest is the area around Flint's Pond, which I think I've talked about, um, De Cordova Museum and, um, and that stuff. It's sort of the, the pond that is sort of set back further. Um, and it, and that was one of the ponds that, the, or that was the other pond that Henry was looking at before he built his cabin at Walden, um, because his, uh, college roommate, 
roommate's, his college roommate's family, um, Charles Wheeler, Charles Stearns Wheeler, um, had, they already had a house there by the, by the water and he had spent a summer or, you know, six weeks or something, um, with his, uh, with his college roommate in between, um, in between years. And they, uh, they hung out by the pond and, uh, he wanted to live in that cabin, but his roommate was in Germany and he would later die. He was one of the earliest transcendentalists to die young. Um, and his family wouldn't give him permission. So he had to go and ask Emerson. Um, but you know, that area, um, is, um, its own jewel. So anyway, to continue about, um, the global warming and the the weirdness of walking into like this section of fall in like a very humid and, um, you know, in the seventies, like, uh, I was walking around in a, a sleeveless, uh, sleeveless, um, dress yesterday while I was hiking and, um, you know, we're, we're walking and this is, so I would say that we're sort of past peak and, you know, there's still, um, a lot of trees that still are, are hanging on to their leaves, but they're going to hang on to those leaves throughout winter. But, you know, so they're either red or they're, you know, sort of red brownish. I feel like we're in this russet period where, you know, we're, we're past peak. There are lots of trees that are essentially now, you know, skeletons or, um, like Sondheim said in one of his songs, um, like, uh, broken umbrellas. Um, where they just feel naked, you know, and there's so many leaves on the ground and the leaves are, um, you know, a few weeks ago when the leaves would fall, they would still be like bright yellow. So it's like walking down like the Wizard of Oz kind of like yellow brick road of just like paths of of gold, you know, in front of you. Um, but now there are, um, well, and then there are, if there are um, yellow trees, um, we saw a lot of Norway maple, um, which is, you know, quote unquote, an invasive in this area. Um, but it was still nice to see that bright kind of yellow. But it was also, you're sort of aware that that's, that's kind of the only color color, that, you know, the, um, the temporary color that's going to be gone in another week. So, you know, we're walking, walking down the path, you know, all of these dead leaves in front of us. And there's yellow and then there's the, the green of the pines and other, you know, like I said, like russet colors. Um, but, you know, all of us were, you know, you're, even though you're dressed in layers, you're still sort of sweating because it was, it felt very humid still. And it felt like one of the humid days that we had had during the summer. And, you know, this past summer we had um, sort of an extended period of hot, humid, 90 degree weather um, coupled with a drought as well. And I don't know what the drought did in terms of, um, um, helping the leaves become more bright. <laughs> Cause I think that we had enough rain in September to, um, if not end the drought, like at least mitigate it a little bit. So that's what this year has been like. Um, and like I said, it's like the first weekend in of, of November and it's, um, <laughs> and it's hot. Let me tell you, it just feels, um, unnerving. Um, and then I think in another few days, I'm going to go on another hike and it's going to be in the fifties, which is way more appropriate and way more standard. Um, so, uh, but reading about, uh, 
Henry talking about like the the deep snow of 1717 and how people were, you know, and cows and animals were sort of like. And so it turns out that Thoreau is actually quoting um, Cotton Mather, who has done history of um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, he's sort of the person who sets down the um, the idea of the pilgrims. Um, uh, and he's, there's another, there's another history of the, the pilgrims called Of Plymouth Plantation from 1620 to 1647 by William Bradford. Um, but Cotton Mather, who, um, who comes later on, um, is the one who sort of controls the narrative, I think, and kind of smooths it out. William Bradford was like the person who was actually there for the pilgrims. Um, but Cotton Mather is the one who's like, this is how we survived. And this is how, you know, us white settlers controlled the land. And he's the one who, um, who really shapes the narrative into this whole thing. So the 1717 snows, I, um, you know, they call it the great snow and, and how people get buried and stuff. I, I, um, I think that, I think that Cotton Mather turns things into legend a little bit. Um, but, you know, with global warming, like I said, it's sort of hard to tell the difference between his perception of things in the days way before, you know, snowplows and, and things like that. Um, and, and I, I also think, so here's, here's another like larger, deeper thought that I generally have about the transcendentalists. Um, they, are coming from a series of generations in New England that, you know, were all about the pilgrims and then they were all about the revolution. And even as, you know, um, Henry is, is a young man, the old men in the town are the ones who were, you know, either fighting at the Old North Bridge or, you know, said that they were fighting at the Old North Bridge they were the ones who were kind of like the young men. Um, and so Henry has kind of inherited that piece of the legend and Emerson too, you know, it's, and this is sort of why I think part of transcendentalism even went forward so much because it's kind of like, all right, we've been operating from legends of how the country got started and how, you know, we forged civilization from this virgin land um, and now we can get into like the educational evolution and the evolution of thought and intellect. And like, you know, it's sort of like Darwinian um, uh, versions of, you know, how do how do humans develop? How do humans develop a country? Um, and a lot of Emerson was shaking off the old ideas of Europe and the old ideas of religion but sort of espousing like the, the modern day idea. Um, I feel like a lot of, I feel like a lot of American history is sort of based on the idea that, um, that the, you know, the teenagers and like the young generation, they're here to remake the vision of, you know, how the story gets told and the narrative. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that that's hysterical. Like, you can see it in the 1950s. You can see it in the 1960s. Um, you can see it with, you know, Gen Gen Y, Gen, you know, 
I, w- I was going to say not Gen X. Um, I feel like that that wasn't so much of a revolution, but like Gen Y and Gen Z, um, and the and the idea of the millennials. It's sort of the millennials are the first generation to be responding to the technology around them, um, and not so much revolution, but kind of like <laughs> the world is sort of in revolution because of technology. Anyway, um, so. Cotton Mather. That was Cotton Mather. Um, and I, and I, again, I love the idea of the snows. Um, I've been recording this episode for kind of a long time, but we still have not had a big snow. Um, I would like to also point out the word crunched. Um, and cause I have used it many a time on my hikes and I have heard it used. Um, and it came up like three times in one day. Um, it's a very appropriate sound and verb to use about walking through leaves or snow. Um, and I'm, I'm also referring to commons.digitalthoreau.org as I'm making all of these commentaries. Um, and I think it's, it's sort of creating its own, um, uh, document in time because readers are allowed to contribute. And a lot of the comments are made about, um, they're, they're created actually in like 2020. So I think there was a professor who had encouraged his students to comment, um, cause there was a lot of stuff about COVID and especially in March of 2020, it's like, we were all told to stay inside and keep away from other humans. So I feel like when people talk about Walden as being like the ultimate COVID novel, like, the like the these these paragraphs when he's talking about like I just like hanging out in the snow and and being happy in my little cabin like that's the the heart of the uh, the COVID argument. Um, it's so funny. Um, there's there's the line. Yet I rarely fail to find even in midwinter some warm and springy swamp where the grass and skunk cabbage still put forth with perennial verdure and some hardier bird occasionally awaited the return of spring. Um, that usually happens in like March and April, something like that. Like uh, really the skunk cabbage is the first thing to really um, warm up. And there's something amazing about skunk cabbage in the biological world where it creates its own heat and urges itself to um, come up in the spring. So that's, um, I don't, I don't know what that biological process is called, but I've definitely been on hikes with biologists who, who talk at length about how amazing skunk cabbages are. Um, there is a note that says when um, Henry is talking about the deep tracks of a woodchopper, um, like the actual person he's referring to is Alex Therain who is described at length in the visitor's chapter. And when he talks about a long-headed farmer, um, Sanborn identifies him as Edmund Hosmer. Um, and the if you read um, The Transcendentalists and Their World, that was published in, I think, 2021 um, by uh, Robert Gross, he's a person who... Um, or that book is all about the farmers and the, um, 
the residents of Concord that lived there while Emerson and Thoreau were active in writing. So if you want to get into like small town life, that's a great book. Um, <laughs> the book is um, oddly titled, I think. Um, it's called Transcendentalists in Their World to parallel um, Bob Gross's earlier book, uh, Minutemen in Their World. Um, but Transcendentalists in Their World, um, he only really talks about Thoreau and Emerson, and he only really talks about um, the white men of Concord. So like, I feel like the title should have been Thoreau and Emerson and the White Men of Concord, rather than Transcendentalists and Their World. If you read it hoping to come across like the definitive uh, idea of who is a transcendentalist and who is not, and what the world of 1845 looked like, um, you are you're going to get a different picture than the one you expect. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and let's say... The uh, the one who came from farthest to my lodge through deepest snow and most dismal tempest was a poet. Uh, a farmer, a hunter, a soldier, a reporter, even a philosopher may be daunted, but nothing can deter a poet, for he is actuated by pure love. So let me talk about William Ellery Channing. He's Channing the Younger. You may hear about his uncle, who was this very famous um, um uh, uh, I, I want to say like lecturer, uh, uh, deacon, reverend, the reverend Ellery Channing. Um, very wise, very wise, I was going to say wise guy, wise man. Um, whereas I think, uh, the younger was kind of a wise guy. Uh, I think he was one of Thoreau's best friends. They went on hikes all the time together. Um, I think he's the one that Henry cites the most often as his favorite um, walking companion. And sadly, um, he's sort of known as uh, one of those guys who, you know, just was not really a family man, um, which is really unfortunate because he had married Margaret Fuller's sister and had a few children with her. Um, kind of, he kind of abandoned the family and then, um, uh, Margaret Fuller's sister had to call um, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and Higginson actually um, comes and helps Margaret Fuller's sister sort of fully escape from this weird domestic situation. And Higginson takes her in and um, the kids. And I think Higginson actually adopts um, the daughter, who is called Margaret Fuller. So there's uh, Margaret Fuller Higginson, um, and it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, and, you know, Higginson and, and Channing never spoke after that happened. Um, Higginson had been, I think, was a friend of the Fuller family, if I'm getting this right. Um, so this is, this is one of the awkward chapters of like, yeah, Henry totally loves this guy, and doesn't really represent the fact that he had, um, the, you know, that he wasn't, the, or that, that he had committed to being a husband and a father um, and didn't really live up to that. Um, I think of him as like one of those people in the 60s, uh, you know, kind of like the irresponsible hippie guy who just goes out for cigarettes and never comes back. Um, and that's kind of who 
um, kind of who Channing was. And, but, you know, but yeah, he was a poet and yeah, he wrote poetry. (laughs) There's a reason you probably don't know him as a poet. Um, he was not Thoreau. He was not Emerson, not a great poet. Um, and so there's the other question of like, you know, you give up your responsibilities for your art, but then your art doesn't really live up to your vision. Um, so that is, that is a challenge because there are lots of people who might think, oh, there's got to be something magical in the water that turns everybody in Concord into really amazing writers. Uh, and no, (laughs) that didn't happen. Um, didn't, so it didn't work for Channing. And then, so in the very next, the very next, uh, paragraph, um, I should not forget that during my last winter at the pond, there was another welcome visitor who at one time came through the village through snow and rain and darkness till he saw my lamps through the trees and shared with me some long winter evenings. One of the last of the philosophers Connecticut gave him to the world. So like he's, he's not naming him, but this person is Bronson Alcott, um, who's known today, probably most famously as Louisa May Alcott's father, but back in the day, he was the one that was sort of one of the main transcendentalists. He had uh, started a school, um, and Elizabeth Peabody had written a book called Record of a School um, about his school, and it was very controversial uh, when the kids asked him where, you know, babies came from. He kind of told them. Um, also, he had a, uh, he would, he admitted um, African-American students as well. So I feel like it was controversial about like his te- teaching methods. And, you know, he re- he thought that, um, you know, like children have the best wisdom in them and they just need to be drawn out, which is like the literal definition, the Latin meaning of educate is to draw out educo. Um, and, you know, he thought that that's, that's all you had to do. Um, so, like there were plenty of things that made him questionable enough in his day, but the thing that really ended his school was when he tried to integrate it. And sadly, I've been looking up a lot of history around the time and there was a lot of like very violent opposition against integrated schools. Um, his school closed in Boston, his temple school closed. That's what it was called. Um, the book I think was published in like 1835, so, so like around the time that, that even Emerson is like starting to do, um, uh, starting is, is, uh, publishing nature. Um, I think the next year. So like, this is what Bronson is trying to do. Um, so when you think about how violently opposed Americans were in the 1950s and 1960s against integration of high schools, and Rosa Parks, or, uh, you know, like the whole, the whole African-American, um, um, groundswell of civil rights and like how horrible it was. Um, there, I hate to say there are much worse stories of how, um, and I hate to say, especially in New England, um, where there would be schools that would be like literally the building would be torn down. Like they would take horses and they would like violently tear the buildings down. They would set them on fire with people inside, like horrible, horrible stories. So if you're interested in 
how hard it was to get an education, especially if you were an African-American person in the 1800s. Like, I hate to say there's lots of, um, lots of documentation for that, that can be found. Um, but to get back to, uh, Bronson Alcott, uh, so yeah, so at some point he, like, he's a guy, so not only was he about education, he is a guy who throughout his whole life had all these like brilliant visionary ideas. Um, he also wrote books or tried to write books. Um, he wrote a book called Conquered Days, um, which I have a YouTube, um, series, a conversation series that I named after that. Hopefully I'm a little bit more eloquent than Bronson was, but who knows? Um, the, one of the reasons that you don't always hear of Bronson's writings is sort of the same thing about Ellery, right? Like he's not, he's not easy to read. He, um, even, even in his time, I think that people understood that he was, um, I don't even want to, I like, I don't want to use the term blowhard. I don't want to use the term, um, like, because because so here's the thing henry david thoreau loved him emerson loved him they really you know liked him in terms of his philosophy and his conversation um hawthorne was like his neighbor his next door neighbor and there i i literally just came upon a rock right next to the wayside um that says and it was put up there like 1911 or something and it's like, this is the hill that Hawthorne used to run up and away from any kind of visitors. And Hawthorne would literally like escape out the back door because he hated like, he hated socializing. He hated like talking to the public in general, but he really hated talking to Bronson Alcott because he would talk your ear off. And I think that really drove Hawthorne crazy. Um, and Bronson literally would sit out front, like in front of Orchard House, which is like one of the next houses on the same block, um, with a big barrel of apples and invite people to have an apple. And then he would like talk to them because he was a guy who just loved to talk, loved great ideas. He came up with a great idea of Fruitlands, you know, which is sort of like, hey, let's all let me move my family to this vegan commune. And we won't use things that harm animals. So no wool and no cotton because of the, you know, slavery that's happening in the South. Um, and if you are trying to live in New England with these winters, like right, like the winter of 1717, where snow is really high, um, you're not going to stay warm. And he would allow them to eat apples. But like, that was it. Like, like it, he was, it was very, very strict. And, um, his poor wife, uh, who was called Abba by her daughters, uh, which I always think is a fun is a funny turn of phrase because Abba means father in um, in Hebrew. Uh, but she would she was uh, her it was a nickname for Abigail. Um, so she and she was called Abba by her daughters, and she has a quote about Fruitlands where uh, you know it said it it didn't allow any beasts of burden except for me. Because she was the one who had to pull the plow and, you know, or just do all of the work. Um, Because Bronson was one of those people who definitely had his head in the clouds. Um, And so I love that, um, that Thoreau devotes 
you know, quite a, um, quite a lovely, long and extended tribute to him, um, talking about, talking about Bronson visiting him. Um, also Bronson is the one who had brought him the ax, um, to help him, uh, build a cabin. Um, and I want to contrast that with the short paragraph near the end that is only like, um, yeah, it's only, it's only one full sentence. There was one other with whom I had solid seasons, long to be remembered at his house in the village and who looked in upon me from time to time, but I had no more for society there. Um, so that's his mention of Emerson, which is really interesting because it's Emerson's land that he is essentially squatting on and improving. Um, and there's a, a book by um, Jeff Kramer, who is the resident uh, librarian, historian, researcher at the Walden Woods Project. Um, and he uh, wrote a book called Solid Seasons um, that is literally about the friendship between Henry David Thoreau and Emerson and has, um, he, he, he really, really does a, a really excellent job. I recommend this book. Um, because he he puts their letters next to each other and he puts their journal entries next to each other. Um, and it's really interesting to trace their relationship because it goes from Emerson being um, Thoreau's mentor, you know, because he's like 10, 10 years older, something like that, 13. Something, he's older than Thoreau. And then um, Thoreau is a writer very eager to get published, putting in, you know, sending away little essays and, and doing stuff. And then Thoreau writes his first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, which is actually what he wrote at Walden. Um, Walden is the book that came next. And that's sort of based on his journals and notes that he did write while he was there. But Walden took, Walden wasn't published till, you know, 1854. So like a full 10 years after he was at Walden. Um, and while he was at Walden, he wrote this book um, called A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers about a two-week journey canoe trip that he had taken with his brother. And one of my theories is that, you know, Thoreau is very deeply in grief and he's trying to get over his brother um, and still trying to evoke his brother and trying to evoke every memory possible. So he's, you know, this is a very deeply emotional and sentimental book for him. Um, he does not mention his brother's name, except in the very first, um, there's an opening poem, um, Be Thou My Muse, My Brother. So you can kind of tell the rest of the book is dedicated to him. And his brother is the companion on this trip. So, you know, and, and anyway, so Henry really works hard on this book and offers it to Emerson to read and, you know, asks him for any kind of... Um, critique or you know are there ways that I can prove it and Emerson said oh it's great it's fabulous blah 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 and then Henry publishes it and he essentially self-publishes it uh and it fails it's like really horrible and Thoreau was hoping that Emerson would write to all his friends and get all his friends to give it a positive review and uh no <laughs> did not did not really happen really kind of um, I think that Thoreau was t 
taking all of that disappointment and all of that, um, all of this, all of the signs that he's seeing that are the exact opposite of success and kind of putting it on Emerson. Um, I think that there are letters that Emerson did write and, you know, he did whatever he could and, you know, people just didn't really like the book. Um, and so Thoreau was really bitter about that. And that was a huge rift in their friendship. Um, and <laughs> I think the fact that that's, that Emerson only gets solid seasons, like in Olive Walden, um, I think that's a little bit of like, Henry cannot bring himself to, uh, be more generous to his friend, um, at this point as he's writing it. And I think that's, uh, you know, you would hope that like by 10 years that, that he would have gotten over it, but I think it's still, I think it's still happening. So by the time Thoreau passed away in uh, 1862, I think they, their friendship had, um, had gotten better, had healed. Um, and Emerson always called Thoreau his best friend. Um, even when Emerson was like deep in his dementia, he still referred to Thoreau as his best friend. Um, so, all right, that's, that's where I think we can leave it. Um, Again, my name is Tammy Rose, and I run the website transcendentalconquered.org um, or .com. Uh, go there, put in your email if you're interested in um, communicating with me, letting me know if you're listening to this and if you like it, um, or if you don't like it, let me know too, because I have a very interesting project coming up, um, which I... Um, I'm officially going to announce, um, hopefully for 2023, uh, but it has something to do with a week on the Concord and Merrimack rivers. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Um, I run a Facebook group on, um, that's called Transcendental Concord. Um, and so look that up and join me there. I will definitely keep everything up to date on that. Um, and I usually post events that are happening in Concord and sometimes lectures that happen on zoom. So no matter where you are in the world, you can stay in touch with your, um, Concordian friends and other fellow history nerds. Um, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.